Good morning again and welcome. We are um, continuing this morning. We have been working our way through Romans uh, for a good while now here at South Baton Rouge. And um, just recently in the life of our church, really in the past four or five weeks, we've had a number of deaths um, in our church family, uh, four mothers actually, um, in four weeks. And so we took a little detour to spend some time thinking about uh, what the scriptures say about death and as a, as a church community. And we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 15 in that regard. It's one of the sort of the main places to go in thinking about that subject in the Bible. And we've taken two looks at it, and this morning we're going to take um, our third look at that subject. In our first look, we saw the important and necessary connection between Christ's bodily resurrection and that of his people. And uh, that's why we are so firm, uh, firmly committed to a belief in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Uh, that connection is, is uh, very uh, personal for us. In our look last week, we saw a number of things kind of building on that, including, uh, one, that the relationship between the bodies that we now have and the bodies that we will have is one of both discontinuity and continuity. Some things will be the same as they are now, and some things will be very different with our new resurrection bodies. We learned also that the fall of humankind made us not only spiritually unfit for heaven, but also actually bodily unfit for heaven. Just as different contexts and situations require different kinds of bodies, the same is true of the new upcoming context that is heaven, which if we want to live there, will require a radical transformation of our bodies, of our flesh to live there forever. The ones we currently have simply will not do. That we learned also that the gospel accounts of Jesus' own resurrection body provide us with some helpful clues in thinking about these matters. Those are the kind of things which we addressed as we thought about the implications of the bodily resurrection for you and me as God's people today. But Paul's not yet finished. In the verses before us this morning, he goes on to address other issues, possibly other questions that people are asking on this subject and which are related to the matter, specifically the kind of questions that Paul seems to anticipate with this last set of verses are questions like this, um, what does this teaching about the bodily resurrection, specifically our bodily transformation, mean for those who are still alive when Jesus comes back? What will happen to them? Secondly, how does all this relate to the final defeat of death? And thirdly, if all of this is true, what does that mean for how we live now? Those are some of the matters addressed in the verses before us as Paul continues to tease out the significance of what he's been saying about the resurrection and the transformation of our bodies. That's the subject of our study this morning. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father in heaven, please guide us now through this word which you have given to us, which is um, completely reliable and trustworthy. Father, we, but we, and, it, and it is clear, but we need your spirit to teach us to take these truths and apply them to us as a church community, but as individuals. Uh, and that will require 
uh, the kind of understanding and knowledge and ability that only you have, Father, to impress these things upon us in a lasting and meaningful uh, and effective way. And so we ask you to do that now by your Spirit. And we thank you in advance for the good things that you will do and show us through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. With that first verse, verse 50, Paul finishes up a previous thought about the nature and necessity of the bodily transformation, summarizing what he's been saying in the verses just preceding. And then in verse 51, Paul goes on to further clarify what he's saying pointing out that the transformation of our physical bodies is something which applies not only to those who have died, but is equally necessary for those who are still living when Jesus returns. Both the living and the dead will, will and must be transformed if they're to experience eternal life with God. These bodies, Paul says, these things right now that we wear uh, are perishable, they're not suited to imperishable existence in a perfect world. And, the, and this fact of the transformation of even the living is one which Paul describes as a mystery, meaning by that what he typically means when he uses that word mystery, that is something which at one time was an unknown truth, but which has now been revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is not the first time that Paul has talked about this kind of thing. It is the first time he said something about it to the Corinthians. However, in what scholars generally acknowledge as an earlier letter than the Corinthians, Paul says some very similar things in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 13. Perhaps you've read these. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So we see that Paul has said some similar things to the Thessalonian church. What's different in Corinthians, however, is that Paul is even more explicit here about what's going to happen when Jesus returns, making it clear not only that the dead and the living will meet the Lord Jesus, but as we've already seen, that they will be changed. They will actually be transformed in the process. The whole church, all of God's people, will be transformed together. And as sort of a side note, but which I think has some bearing on the issue at hand, it's instructive to note the kind of language that Paul uses in talking about all of this, particularly as he uses to talk about those who've died. Paul uses the language of sleep. He does it here, and he says it in the letter to the Thessalonians, and it appears in other places too. Now, why does Paul talk about those who have died as those who are asleep? I think the simplest answer is to say that Paul talks about death in terms of sleep because he is so sure of the promise uh, and of the gospel, because he is so convinced of the inevitability of our resurrection because of Christ, and because he so despises death for the enemy that it is. For all of those reasons and more, I think Paul quite happily refers to death as a kind of sleep precisely because, like sleep, It is not a permanent state of affairs for a Christian. It is just a temporary interruption. Indeed, in a moment we'll hear Paul calling out to death in these verses. He's going to taunt death. He's going to mock death for its ultimate impotence and in the process showing that he has no respect for it. And he is not shaken by its empty threats. And so Paul's reference to death as a kind of sleep is just really one more taunt in its direction. One more expression of his firm conviction that death has been defeated and it has no ultimate power over the believer. Well, getting back to the main point, we see here how the necessity of the bodily transformation means that even the living must be changed to be fit for heaven. The passage does not tell us how this will happen, only when... And how long it will take place. It will happen when Christ returns, which is what the phrase that the last trumpet is all about. And when that day finally arrives, the resurrection and transformation will take place in the twinkling of an eye. In other words, it will be instantaneous. In that moment, what, what was once perishable will become imperishable. What was weak will become powerful. What was mortal will become immortal. And so any Corinthians that might be wondering what would happen to those who were still alive when Christ returned, they need wonder no more. Paul wants them to know that they will not miss out simply because they have not died yet and so still have their original bodies and so be disqualified. They're not going to miss out. They're going to be transformed too. They're going to have new resurrection bodies just as those who have died. They will receive one just in a slightly different fashion than those who have died. But the end result is the same. From there, Paul turns again to a subject that he's already addressed once in this chapter, to death itself, and how it is affected, how death is affected by all of these things. Let me read it again to you from verse 54, which starts with, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, 
and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw previously uh, in a couple of sermons ago when we looked at verse 26 that death is, death is an enemy. In fact, it is the last enemy to be destroyed. Further, we saw that the final demonstration of death's defeat, not the accomplishment of its defeat, but the demonstration of its defeat will be our own bodily resurrections. When every last person for whom Jesus died finally rises and is transformed, at that point, death will be shown to be totally destroyed and the complete victory of Jesus will be utterly recognized and vindicated at that point. Well, the passage here takes that truth, which you've already seen, and reinforces it, and in doing so, presents us with two further things to think about with regard to all this. Paul, in these verses, is quoting from two different prophets. He's actually paraphrasing a little bit from Isaiah and from Hosea. And there's a bit of irony here, especially with regard to the Hosea passage, because in the Hosea passage, the one who is calling out to death is God. Only in the Hosea passage, he's not doing it in a mocking sense, as Paul does. He's actually doing it in a summoning sense. In other words, God in Hosea is calling out death, summoning death to be his instrument of judgment upon a rebellious people. And the beautiful irony here is that Paul, in imitation of that same sort of calling out to death in Hosea, shows how at the resurrection, the thing that was once God's instrument of judgment is now the subject of God's judgment itself. The thing that he used is now the subject of his judgment. At the resurrection, all will be exposed and revealed. Death's apparent victories will vanish like a mist. Death's momentary sting will fade and be gone, never to return. Let me put that another way. When Paul asks, O death, where is your victory? He's not asking, where is the victory that you threatened but never delivered on? As if death was all talk and no action. No, Paul's question is more in the vein of, where is the victory that you seem to have won? with all those countless millions and millions of people who have died and rotted in their graves, but now have risen to life. Every single one for whom Christ died. And so demonstrate your ultimate impotence, death. Where is your victory now? Where is it now? Now that these have all risen. Likewise, when Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? He's not asking, where's the pain you threatened but didn't deliver on? Rather, he's asking more in the sense of, where is the sting that was felt initially, but which now is gone forever? It's almost as if he's saying to death, is that all you've got? Is that the best you can do? But here's the crucial question. When is all this going to happen? When does Paul say that the things which these prophets spoke about would come to pass? 
He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul says that we will not fully realize or experience these things until Jesus comes back, at which point the transformation and the resurrection he's speaking of will take place. So has that happened yet? No. So where are we now? We're at this sort of in-between place where we can look at the scriptures, we can see that this day is coming, and yet precisely because it hasn't come yet, we look all around us, we see all kinds of signs which for the moment at least seem to indicate that death has the upper hand. It seems to be victorious. And it is painful. All of which provides us with some clues, I think, about how we ought to respond to death while we await the Lord's return. In the first place, it seems to me that there's a very real sting to death, which comes for a lot of reasons, one of which we'll say more about in a moment, but there is real hurt and there's real pain associated with it. Someone dies, we feel that, we feel loss. We miss them terribly. We feel sorrow. We feel regret for things that we did not say or for things that we said and did not withdraw. It's not wrong or unnatural to admit and own all those kinds of feelings when someone dies. Sometimes I think Christians get this funny idea about grief and death and mourning and, and, and as if uh, feeling this kind of intense sorrow is some sort of act of treason or unbelief for a Christian to feel death sting deeply. As if you're letting down the team somehow if you do anything other than smile bravely and talk about the glories of heaven. Listen, when these times come and you feel grief and you are broken hearted, you are not letting down the team. You have not lost the plot. You're not acting faithlessly. You're not forgetting the gospel. Death is an enemy and it has a sting Yes, it has been defeated, but not yet fully destroyed or removed from the picture. Yes, its sting will be removed, but for now, it remains. And it's real. It's not wrong to acknowledge those things. Jesus himself, the Lord of life, wept at Lazarus' tomb. I've met Christians over the years who I feel probably would have gone up to Jesus and said, wait a minute, do you not understand what's going on here? Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. He got it. And he wept. All at the same time. We have to hold these realities in tension. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we, don't not, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that or so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. 
With those words, Paul is not saying he doesn't think grieving is appropriate. He's saying that the grief of Christians is real, but it ought to be categorically different than that of unbelievers. Because unlike an unbeliever, God's people have the hope of the gospel. The hope of the bodily resurrection. And that's the other side of all this. Even when we feel the sting of death for a time, in the midst of all that, we are to remember the gospel. To remember our resurrected Lord. To remember what His bodily resurrection means for our own resurrections. And for the loved ones we mourn. And finally to remember that a day is coming when death will be completely overthrown. And it will be shown to have been completely impotent. Which means that in response to death, we're free to feel both great sadness and great joy. You don't have to choose. We can experience both ends of the spectrum as everything else in between. We can grieve, but not as the hopeless and the lost. And that's one further thing to think about with regard to what these verses say about death. The other thing to think about is found at the end. There's sort of a very short, uh, but dense theological statement, but Paul makes some important connections for us there. He says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts out by saying the sting of death is sin, which is a little surprising. Because you might have thought he would say that the sting of sin is death. Sting of sin is death, but that's not what he says. The sting of death is sin. Now, he could have said the other thing in another context, but his purpose is different here. Paul isn't emphasizing here that death is the consequence of sin, although that's true. What he wants to emphasize here is the fact that it is sin which ultimately makes death such a painful and hurtful reality. As C.K. Barrett puts it, taking death as a given fact, sin is what embitters it, not only psychologically in that it breeds remorse, but also theologically in that it makes it clear that death is not a natural phenomenon, but a punishment, an evil that need not exist and would not exist if man were not in rebellion against his creator. The sting of death is sin. So Paul makes a connection between death and sin, and then after that, uh, making that connection, he goes a step further to make a connection between sin and the law. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law? How can Paul say that? Isn't the law a good thing? We've been through that in Romans, right? Listen to what one commentator has to say about this. The law which is good functions as the agent of sin because it either leads to pride of achievement or reveals the depth of one's depravity and rebellion against God. In either case, it becomes death-dealing instead of life-giving. The law, says this writer, can become the agent of sin in two ways. When we think we are living up to it and impressing God, even though in truth we never do, then it can easily foster pride and nurture a sense of self-righteousness, both of which are sinful. Conversely, it is precisely the existence of the law which shows us what sinners we actually are. And not only that, we saw in Romans, Paul says, 
Sin actually nurtures further sin. It pulls it out of The law nurtures further sin. It pulls it out of us. That's how the law works. It shows us our sin. It even pulls further sin out of us. It shows us up. The law shows us up for the fakes and the frauds and the liars, the adulterers and murderers that we are. In the hands of sin, the law is deadly. So what's the point of all this? Why is... Why bring all this up about death and sin and the law at this point in the passage? And I think Paul's purpose here as he winds up this whole chapter is simply to show how complete is Christ's victory over death, right? Paul wants the Corinthians to see that Christ's victory over death means the end of sin and the end of law as sin's agent of destruction. In other words, not only is death going to be destroyed, but also, everything that brought death into the picture in the first place, all of those things will be destroyed as well, which means history really is linear, that we're going somewhere, that we're not going to go through this ever again as God's people. Which brings us to verse 58, and to the third thing Paul very briefly deals with in the closing verses of this chapter, the implications of the body, resurrection, and transformation for the life and practice of the Corinthians. Not surprisingly for Paul, he filters down the practical significance of what he's been saying in pretty simple terms. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Paul finishes this long discussion about death with an appeal to the Corinthians to be steady to be faithful, to commit themselves anew to the work of the gospel where they are in this wide open mission field for them, which was the city of Corinth. To Paul's mind, that was the only sensible response to this magnificent hope which he's just laid out for them, a hope secured by Christ. Certainly Paul wanted them to be assured and confident and encourage themselves by what he's just said, but he doesn't want it to stop there. He doesn't want them to just be encouraged by all this. That's the nature of good news. Good news wants to be shared. I mean, isn't that the way when you get some piece of really great news in your life, you, you're bursting to tell somebody about it? And Paul is giving arguably the greatest piece of good news you can run across here in this chapter. And he's saying that the natural momentum of that good news does not just stop with you. It, it should go through us. We should become not only recipients but then vessels, carriers, transmitters, proclaimers, ambassadors of that good news. Good news wants to be shared. Paul wants them to do the same with the good news of the resurrected Savior. As they go forward, they can know, as they do these things, as they engage in these things and spread this news, they can know that their work is not and cannot be in vain. And it cannot be in vain because Christ, by His resurrection, has already settled everything. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the comforting words that have been found in this chapter over the past few weeks about death. We thank you also, Father, that they are not just comforting words, they are compelling words. They compel us to share this news with everyone. And in the nature of the case, Father, because death touches every one of us many times in our lives, that we will have many occasions to talk about the realities of death, about what you have to say about it, about its defeat in the cross, about the hope that is there, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of eternal life that is there for all who embrace the Lord Jesus. Father, we will have many opportunities, some maybe even this week, even this day, to take this not only comforting news, but this compelling news of the hope that we have, even in the face of death. Father, please, please use us. Please give us the courage and the conviction to act like we believe the things we say we believe. And to be willing to speak to open our mouths and to share this good news as much as we show it. We thank you for the comfort. Please use us now to comfort others through this truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And I'll take up a collection for those who want to support the work of this church and various ministries through this church.